Beautiful. Beautiful lifting of your voices this morning. And now we're going to turn our attention to the Word of God. As we've sung His praises, let's look at more reasons why we should continue to praise Him as we are in the book of Genesis. We just started last week. It was an introduction of just verses 1 and 2. And today we're going to actually finish the rest of the chapter, go through all the way through chapter 1, and then the first three verses of chapter 2. But it's a lot, of, lot to go over, so we're just going to read together verses 1 and 2. So uh, can you put those on the screen there for us? And then let's read this together out loud, all of us. It's here all on, in one version, so we can all be on the same page. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's read this together. Hear the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the living God. I love it, and we've got lots of babies here today to declare the praise of God, and so if they declare that in the middle of the sermon, praise His name, I'll just be a little louder, and we give thanks every time. Um, But uh, go ahead and have a seat. May the Lord bless the reading of His word. And uh, may he give me strength today as I do my best as a frail man to teach you a little bit about Genesis, the creation of the world. And again, last week we spent time going over a lot of the reasons of why we should study Genesis. Um, And it's important for us to consider, I don't think we covered this much last week, but what kind of book is Genesis? Obviously, most of us know it's the first book in the Bible. It's the book of beginnings, and it uh, teaches us a a foundational way who God is. And so, as we look at at the book, our position from Scripture is always, it's the truth. God, let God be true, let every man be a liar, but God will be true. And so as we come to God's book his God breathed, His Holy Spirit inspired the, the words breathed out by God Himself. We see that Genesis is not a myth. It's, it's not just a story. And, and I'll, I'll say this because I think it's helpful in importance. It's not a science textbook. And a lot of times we, we want the apologetic, and I said this is a sermon, much different than some kind of apologetic or scientific lecture, That would be something different. Um, It's theology. It's theology in a historical narrative, so it is history. It's not systematic theology as we see in other parts of Scripture. But we need to come to it with this understanding that these events actually happened. We also need to come with an understanding that there is no conflict with God and science, with God and the Bible. Again, Genesis is not a scientific textbook, primarily because science can never explain God. Genesis is the revelation of God. It tells us who He is, presents Himself to us, and tells us what He has done. We learned last week that it was written by Moses. And that's important for us to grasp when we look at the context of Genesis, when, when it was written in the time frame when after 400 years of slavery in, in, in Egypt, now the Israelites are coming out, led out 
by their covenant God and they need to know Him. They need to know some things about Him if they're going to be able to go into the promised land and thrive. It's a supernatural book. And that's important and helpful for us to understand these things because when we start talking about the creation of the world and we want to get into uh, uh, anthropology and geology and biology and all these things, let me just say pretty cut and dry. Materialistic naturalism only sees inside the box, if you will. Imagine with me a box, and that's material things. All of creation is inside this box. The rocks, the trees, the stars, the sun, the moon, everything that you can see, everything that's materially here is inside the material box. God is in the box, but God is above the box and outside of the box because God is omnipresent. God is involved in the box, but He Himself is not a part of His creation. He rules over His creation. So He stands transcendent. He he lives, He exists transcendent outside of and above His creation. And this is why materialistic naturalism can only go so far because it only sees and understands what's inside the box. And so I want to declare that there is no conflict with the Bible and science, but there is certainly major conflict with atheistic naturalism and the Scriptures. And that's where we have to guard our hearts and ourselves as we think through these things because much of the origin stories of our modern days and theories come from an atheistic naturalist perspective. Well, I choose to believe God, not Stephen Hawking. I believe that Jesus, when He lived and walked on this earth, turned water into wine. And that was a miracle. That was supernatural. That was a creative work. He didn't wait for the the grapes to be smashed and put together and processed and bottled. It was a miraculous event. I believe that Jesus fed 5,000 plus loaves and two fish. That He miraculously created bread and fish to feed the multitudes. I believe He raised Lazarus from the dead. I believe that He resurrected from the grave. That He literally died, He was physically buried, and He rose from the dead. That's what the Scriptures declare. You may or may not believe that with me. But you certainly have to face who He is. I also believe that God created the heavens and the earth according to Genesis in six literal 24-hour days. And I know that there's many that would disagree with my particular timetable. Even many I love and respect and even good Christians would see certain, like a gap between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis. Or some have even uh, taken a day here, the word day, yom, to mean long periods of time. And how do we deal with such disagreements? Here's what I would say. Charity. Love. We do live in America. And so you are free to disagree with me. And you also have the right to be wrong. I say that humbly, no. But I I just don't have a struggle with 
these trying to figure out how do we fit all this into the narratives of the modern day. Um, and that's certainly something we could talk about if you have questions. Talk to me after the service and we can certainly have conversations. But as a theological point, a book, a book about the study of God, my important point, or the most important point in Genesis is not the timetale of creation, it's the revelation of creation. It's meant to teach us about God and how he relates to us covenantally. The language used is anthropomorphic language. It's language we can understand. It's language that, that, help, that, that you and I would use on an everyday basis. Language, we use it like, did you get up this morning and see the sunrise? And you could be very critical about that and say, well, the sun doesn't actually rise. Did you know that, Brian? But we speak anthropomorphically. And so when you think about God, transcendent God, holy God, eternal God, the only existing God outside of and above of his, his creation, I, I don't, there's no even comparison in how to relate this, but the best explanation I can get on how God is revealing truth to us, for me to understand how difficult that, that is, is, is try, to, try to explain love to a cockroach. How would you do that? How would you explain love to a cockroach? <laughs> so, amazingly, God explains Himself to us in words. He speaks. How do we ever know who God is? How can we understand any bit about Him, the great and mighty God, if He is God? If He's just like me or just like you, eh, not even worth worshiping, right? But if He's God, if He's literally God... How do we understand him? Unless he speaks. And thankfully, God has spoken. And so God speaks, and he speaks in a context here to a people that he's in the midst of rescuing from, again, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, and Moses is writing these words, and they're heading to the promised land. They, they've been used to living a certain way, and, and they're getting out of it. They've been set free from the old life. They're now free, and they're, they're, how do we learn to live now in this life? What do we need to know about our God as we're going into this land that's filled with pagans, people that, that, are, that, that worship other gods, that have many different rituals that are perverted and such. How do we live in such a world? How do we deal with this multitude of pagan ideologies? And God gives His Word and He speaks the story of creation to His people. As we saw last week, the story of creation begins with the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and void. Those are the Hebrew words tohu and bohu. So the earth was, was tohu vabohu. It's without form and it's void. And as we go through the rest of Genesis, all the way to the end of chapter 1, I've got a little chart up there for you to help us understand how poetic and beautiful this writing is as well that Moses writes here to help us understand the story. Because the first section we're going to have, and that's going to be point one, is talk about how God forms the world. Point two is going to be how the world then is filled. He forms and then he fills. And what he's doing is he's taking the tohu and the bohu and he's, he's forming what is unformed and he's filling what is empty, what is void. 
And we're going to see the days of creation broken apart in that way. There's two different triads where you have day one, something is done. Day two, something is done. Day three, two things are done. And the same thing on the second triad. The luminaries, the life for the sea and the sky and the land animals and men. And so in day one, we're going to see him separate light from darkness. And then in day four, he's going to fill that, that with the luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars. It's almost as if the, he begins by creating the container, if you will, the life support system, the structure for life on earth, and then he fills the life on earth with these beautiful things. In day two, the waters are separated and he forms the atmosphere. In day five, he's going to create life for sea and sky. You see how they go together? In day three, the dry land and the vegetation. And then on day six, the land animals and the man. He takes the container in the first part and then he pours into it, if you will. We're going to see a set pattern to God's words in Genesis chapter 1. There's announcement. And God said, and God said, and God said. There's commandment, let there be. There's a separation where he's going to separate day, night, water, land, animals, plants. And then there's a result, and it was so. And then there's going to be naming, and God called. He's going to name things. Evaluation, God saw. And then blessing, God blesses. We're going to see this as we go throughout it. I I, can't get into as many details as I would like, but, but let's dive in as best as we can And look at God's creating the world. How does he do it? He speaks. He speaks it into existence. This is the power of God. This is the power of God that the Israelites need to hear in the wilderness. Point number one, God forms the world. Letter A, God creates light and separates it from darkness. Day one. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We, we ended at last week and pick up on verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He immediately remedies the darkness. He speaks. He gives the command showing His sovereignty, His, his creativity, his, his power. He creates light. And light is life and, and blessing. It shows who God is. He is the all-powerful Creator. That He is the ultimate source of light as the Creator. Now some look at this and you see, well, it doesn't make good sense to me here because the sun is created on another day. And that's used a lot to point at at Christians and those of us who believe in creation, it's what, ah, see, there's contradictory, and it's not contradictory. You've got you to understand what God is doing. He's showing who He is again. He's showing that He's the sovereign, created, powerful God. Well, where's the light coming from? It's coming from God Himself. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. He Himself shows Himself to be the ultimate source of light. That He's the creator of light, not a created source of it. And God saw that it is good. What makes it good? It's good because it reflects God. And all of creation does this. Creation is a reflection of God and the goodness we've seen is a reflection of His goodness. And all of this again is, is, and we're going to see this all throughout, you're going to see a a correction to the pagan ideologies of of the nations of Canaan that the Israelites are about to go into. 
You've got all these different nations and tribes of people that, that are, don't believe in the one true God. And they have their own deities and they have their own ideologies and their own way of seeing and interpreting the world. And one of the big ones was this understanding of deity itself. And their deities were created somehow. God wants them to know your God is not created. He's the creator. And creation is dependent on Him, the only source of light. It says, and God separated the light from the darkness. What's He doing here? What's this separation that we keep seeing that we're going to see all throughout the passage? It's God bringing order out of the chaos. The function of the separating here is to prepare for human habitation of the planet. That's what he's after. That's the goal. That's where he's going with it, with his creation. And so he needs to have it prepared. And so there's this separation of light from the darkness. And then then you see the naming in verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now why is this important? It's important because again, he's giving an answer to the ideologies of the day. In the ancient Near East, Naming signified dominion and authority over the thing that was named. So if a, if a king was conquered, he would come in and the, other, the conquering king would change the name of that king. Showing, I'm over you now. I name you. I declare that you're mine. It was a way of showing his authority, showing his sovereignty, showing that he is the ruler. And so the Lord names... Light, day, and the darkness he calls night. And there was evening and there was morning and the first day. And again, that word in Hebrew is yom. I take it to mean day. I know I'm not very smart and there's a lot of people smarter than me, but day is day. (laughs) Elsewhere in Scripture, it's translated as day. And I find it interesting when you read, when you read the ancient literature, uh, early Christian literature, writings and, and, and uh, ancient Jewish writings, the primary commentary on, on this is, how did, he take, how, how did it take so long? Why seven days? <laughs> well, then the modern interpretation is, you know, how, how is it so fast? So it's like, you know, God just can't please anyone, right? He, he, he's got, so I think when he says day, he means day. And when doing that, he's doing some things in the sense of he's de- de-deifying the cosmos, if you will. He's showing that, that it is upheld. The cosmos are upheld by God's covenant word. Creation is not God. Creation is not divine. It's not without divine activity. Right? In fact, God's divine activity is everywhere if you just open your eyes. God creates light and separates it from the waters. Day two, letter B, God separates the waters. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. What is this? This is an understanding that there's an earth here full of of water and God takes this and separates it, forms an atmosphere, a breathable atmosphere. It's the sky. It's, it's, It's the beginning, if you will, of the water cycle of life, that there's oceans and there's rivers and there's clouds, all of it water, and in between there's this there's this expanse. There's the sky, and it's, it's just incredibly, when you look at the, just the way he created things perfectly for human habitation, 
it's unfathomable the, the, the number of like tens to the 43rd power of the chances of, of our planet being perfectly fit for human life. And we're always looking for it elsewhere now, right? We're, we're exploring and seeing, and it's never there. Earth was created for human habitation perfectly. It's amazing. He creates the sky in verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. I do want you to notice that in this particular day, there's no, and it was good. Why? He's not done. <laughs> He's not done with the sky. He's going to do some more with it. He's going to fill it. And the life support systems are not yet in place. And so he keeps going on. And it just reinforces that God is a caring God, a, a father, a good father, whose work of preparing the world for human habitation was perfect. Right? We're not Aquaman, right? Last time I checked, you can survive underwater just a few minutes. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So imagine this planet of, of a shoreless ocean. And then, letter C, God forms the land. On day three, God speaks again. Verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Beauty begins to emerge in the forming, the order, the structure, the container that, that God is building for human habitation. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. The, the Hebrew word is edis. It, it means land, the land. God called the dry land earth. That's a pretty important word in the Scriptures, isn't it? In the Old Testament in particular, the land. 2,504 times it's spoken of in the Old Testament. 849 times in the Torah. 311 times in Genesis alone. It's going to be a big part of our study as we move forward. God called the dry land earth. And the waters were gathered together. He called seas. What is going on here, once again, we see a, a correction, a rebuke to the pagan ideologies of the surrounding nations where these nations held, they, they, they had one deity, they called him Prince Yom. He was the Lord of the Seas. You kind of imagine him today, you know, they have the, uh, what is it, uh, Poseidon? Or who's, the, who's the guy? Who's Ariel's dad? Triton. Triton? Triton. I thought that was the thing he holds. Trident. Oh, okay. Ah, see? Prince Yom. Let's get back. He's like that. He's supposed to be the, the Lord of the seas, right? And so what, what Moses is making sure the people of God know is no. Prince Yom is not the Lord of the seas. Elohim is sovereign over the seas. Elohim is the one who says this far to the, to the ocean and no farther. And they obey him. And God saw that it was good. The infrastructure of the planet is now done. It's ready after day three, and God's ready to pour into that infrastructure, and we see that. Uh, letter D, God provides fertility for the earth. Actually, I jumped ahead. Day three is still happening. There's two things on day three. He provides then fertility for the earth. Verse 11, and God said, 
Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. God allows here, he allows for variation within its kind. That that word, you're going to see it uh, a few times, each according to its kind. It's the truth that something of one kind will never develop into something of another kind. We do have, uh, you think of our modern word species. Species of their kind stay species of their kind. There's these boundaries of reproduction that God created that, that they're bound to cre- reproduce only within their kind. It's like, the, it's like animals that can breed together, right? And, and you have different types of, of animals. So for instance, you have, uh, you have uh, pugs. Who created pugs? God created pugs, but man, where did that pug come from, right? And then you got Great Danes on Chihuahuas. But what are they? What's their kind? They're dogs, right? You, you, you got cats. You, got, you, you don't have cogs and dats. You have dogs and you have cats. And, and we see that those kinds are, are, certainly can breed with their kind, but they don't breed outside of their kind. God created, it's amazing. Here we see in, in the fertility of the vegetation, and that's an important thought here, especially coming into Canaan, into the promised land, because the, this passage here on fertility, that each thing was created with the ability to reproduce the, the plants, the, the trees, the, the, the fruit has seeds within, within them. The power of the vegetation has this reproductive power within itself to keep itself sustained and going. God built sustainability through reproduction into his creation. And it was so, he says. And this is beautiful because it's, it's this beautiful assault on Near East paganism. Another popular theory of the day. They believed in this God named Baal. Baal, Baal, and and Baal was the fertility God. He's the one who allowed in their mindset the crops to come up, and without him, there's no crops, and crops means life, and if we don't have life, so so what would they do? The, The story of Baal went, Baal would die every year after the harvest. He would go into the ground, and so all the plants are up, and Baal is now dead, and then Baal would have to be resurrected and be resurrected to get with his consort to do his fertility thing. And that evolved into all of these pagan fertility cults, if you will, that would, would, would do perverse things in order to try to get Baal to grow the crops. And that was abounding in the area. And these are the places the people of God are about to come into. So what does God want his people to know? Baal is not the God of fertility. I am the God who created things with the ability to reproduce. It's this amazing assault upon the pagan myths. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. It's amazing that the land, the the earth itself is the agent through which God mediates his generative power. And God saw the end of verse 12 that it was good. The life support systems are now in place and, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. All of these showing us God is 
the pervader. Elohim is the, the, the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the governor. And it's easy for us to hear stories like Baal or, or stories like and think, man, those pagans are crazy. I'm just glad that, that that's in the ancient past. And I would ask, is it? Is it? I mean, how popular is it to, to in essence, worship Mother Earth? Those things aren't gone. They've just shifted to other names. And how easy it is for us, even as believers in God and as Christians, to, to get so caught up in the normal, the normality of this incredible planet we live on. To think of what's happening right now. I mean, do you understand? We're like moving through space, <laughs> rotating and orbiting and... and and the tides are doing their thing, and, and the fruit trees are growing fruit, and the flowers are about to grow. It's simply amazing. And we, we forget our forgetfulness of God's work every day on our behalf. How many had breakfast this morning? Where did your breakfast come from? Costco, of course, right? Everything good for... No, I love Costco, but Costco didn't create my breakfast, the elements that it took, the plants and the, all of these wonderful gifts of food. Think of food. When you eat, that's one of the biggest reasons why it's such a joy to give thanks, to bless God when we sit down for a meal. That we recognize the source of that meal. It goes all the way back to Genesis. God created with the seeds, with the life to keep itself sustaining and going. We have to be careful because we have been raised in an age where we think in a humanist enlightenment paradigm. And we have to fight against that. Because if we don't, we, we miss the supernatural hand of God animating his creation. Oh, may we see it and bless his holy name because of it. Point number two, God fills the world. He's now formed Creation, now he's going to fill his creation. Letter A, God sets the luminaries to regulate what he had separated. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. What's that called? And the lesser light to rule the night. What's that called? Oh, and the stars. I just love how, how God does this here. I love how he writes this because on the fourth day of creation, think about this, God spoke the more than two trillion galaxies into existence. Why is it important to know that? Well, you're about to go into the promised land. You're wandering in a wilderness. You're, you're going in to, to be obedient to what God has promised you. He's calling you to something by faith. What do you need to know about him? He's that powerful. He's that amazing. And the pagans of the day in the ancient Near East, they saw the celestial bodies as the primary deities of the day. And so the sun was worshipped, and the moon was worshipped, and the stars were worshipped. 
And I love it here. See, God doesn't even call them at this point. He doesn't say their name. He just says he made the two great lights. Again, this is a correction to the ideologies of the surrounding pagan nations that would want to worship the sun to just say, no, to me, they're just another part of my creation. There's a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. Oh, and almost haphazardly, oh, and the stars. This is the power of God. The pagan mythology said stars directed destinies. We look up to the stars to find out what the future holds. And yet they're mentioned only as an afterthought here. The heavens truly declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. But when we look up at these magnificent bodies, brilliant as they are, beautiful as they are, mysterious as they are, we don't fall on our knees to worship them. We fall on our knees to worship the one who created them. Verse 17, And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Day five, letter B, God creates life in the sea and the sky. Verse 20, and God said, let the earth swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. You ever been out on the ocean? I'm looking at Stefan. He's in the Navy. He's like, yes, I have been on the ocean <laughs> too many times. <laughs> I've not been out like you've been out, but I've been out far enough to see some amazing creatures out there, and that's just, and, and there's so much more. The, isn't it kind of crazy? We've got orcas jumping out around in La Jolla right now. I just find that fascinating. Used to have to go to SeaWorld to see those guys. Now they're right here. The orcas, the the gray whales, the blue whales, the, not to mention the creatures of old, of massive sea creatures that Job speaks of, Leviathan. The ancients would look at them as sea monsters and dragons, and they would fear them and worship them. And yet here in Genesis, God saying, they're just more creatures that I made. And God saw that it was good Verse 22, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. This blessing of God gives them now to these creatures. So as the, the blessing is, in essence, it's, it's to be filled with the, with the potency of life and strength. When God blesses these creatures, He's giving them the gift of, of, of strength and of life and to be able to overcome and defeat death as they're out there living in the seas. The blessing was given in a way so as to rule their realm through the multiplication. Be fruitful and multiply, He tells them, in the water. He blesses them, enabling them to fulfill their natures, to live in their element. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And letter C, we come to day six. God then creates animal life for the land. It's the first act of day six. 
Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. This is speaking of of livestock, domesticated animals, cows, cattle, you know, goats, these things that we care for. And then you have the the creeping things. Those are all the the things that we really wish God wouldn't have created, right? The the cockroaches and the bugs and and the rodents and the... Did I tell you about that time Joe Hamer had a mouse crawl through his classroom and that man jumped on a chair faster than you can say lightning? (laughs) Joe, you wish God didn't make the mice, huh? But you know, but they're created for a purpose, for some reason. God created the mice, the creeping things, and the beasts, the the carnivores. The wild animals that eat each other, eat the other animals. He made all of this by his word. And it was so. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Again, we we see the important phrase, and their kinds emphasized. I do want you to notice there's an absence of blessing to these animals here. There's, it's not there. They're, they're not to have dominion over humanity who is the one to blessed to rule. The fish and the birds, however, did receive their blessing because they inhabit the different domain. They're in the water. We ain't, we ain't in the water. <laughs> That's their domain. And God saw that it was good. And then we come to the crescendo. We've been kind of trudging up the mountain of the Everest of creation, and now we reach the peak of day six. God creates human life. And in that, we see first that man is created in God's image. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, which certainly the plural jumps out at us if it hasn't already. And what's going on here? And some have tried to surmise that, oh, maybe God was like gathering all the angels around and be like, hey, let's go do this. And that's, it really is speaking of God and his being as Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one being in three persons. And it, it really is important to understand this because this becomes the, 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 the grounding of, of the hum, human understanding and need of community as created in God's image, that God himself is perfect community. And this is needed for us to grasp. And he didn't create man here because he was lonely and he needed someone to talk to and he needed a relationship. He was was the very being of relationship within himself. Perfect communion, perfect community, perfect love within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the greatness of God. And so God, as the one God, says, let us... Make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And again, it's important to understand that in the pagan myths of the day and their ideologies, there was an image of God that was placed upon certain men. It, number one, it was, it was only the kings. And the kings were somehow seen as 
as derived from divine. And then the king believed, being, having given his, the divine image upon him, that he also is now divine. And he's, he's a god, and, and he would act like a god. And so you got all these kings, and then also in the ancient world, the, the, according to their understanding, only the king and only a man had the image of God. And here Moses, through the Holy Spirit, is correcting these false ideologies, again, making sure you know man himself, humanity itself, all of us, every single one, every single person, every single human being is created in the image of God as an image bearer of God himself. This makes you so amazing and special. You are created in the image of God, male and female. This is outstandingly significant. An understanding of who we are of our own selves only begins that knowing, by knowing that we're created in the image of God. This creates a, a massive gap, a difference between human life and animal life. We're to value the lives of animals, but it doesn't even compare to the value life of, the, of the human life. There's also a gap between human life and angelic life we see in Scripture. The angels are amazing creatures. We don't understand them, but, but they're not created in the image of God. It also brings in, us into the realm of the most mysterious of mysteries, of the greatest of, of thoughts, of the most incredible of truths, is the incarnation is now truly possible. God in the second person of the Trinity could, could really become man because although deity and humanity are not the same, they're compatible. God shares himself with us. And so we know that later in history, thousands of years after Genesis, God himself would take upon himself humanity. It also teaches us that human life has intrinsic value. At every stage of it, life is dignified and has value. We really are amazing creatures, aren't we? And I'm not saying that to like boost your ego. It shouldn't boost your ego. It should lead you to worship God. To think about it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking over... We're, I was looking at Joe's guitar earlier. Did you put that guitar away? In that case, there's Joe's guitar right over here. There it is. Someone somewhere at some point in history thought, if I pull a string and, and tie it taut enough and I pluck it, it makes music. And then someone else thought, well, if I put a few strings it make, and, I, and I pull them even tighter, it, and then someone else thinks if I take a tree and cut it down and form and fashion it, and then it makes this beautiful sound. Who thought of that? A human being did. How? Why? Because he or she was created in the image of God. With a, a natural countenance to be able to look upward. To know, everybody knows, deep in their being, that there's something special. We look for the answers to it in the wrong places oftentimes. And God wants the people of Israel to keep coming back to him. You look to me for your worth, for your value, for your life. You alone, nothing else of my creation possesses personality, has the understanding of morality, has the spirituality. 
to communicate with God himself. Created in the image of God. We're going to talk a lot more about that next Sunday. I encourage you to come. It's, it's so much great truth in, in chapter 2 as we get into the details of the creation of, of humanity. Created, as we said, male and female. God created them. You cannot have humanity apart from male and female. Imaging God only comes from, from, from both. Created also with a mandate. What's the mandate? In my words, grow, rule, and enjoy. Grow, be fruitful, and multiply. Verse 26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You parents that were up here, you're, you're being faithful to the command. Thank you, Lord. That's a blessing. It's a gift. It's one of the greatest ways God does evangelism. <laughs> he grows disciples through, we have babies. And we teach them and train them in the ways of the Lord. Yes, we go out to the nations and preach the gospel, but also we, we train our own children. This is the fruit that God wants. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Thank God. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is where we find purpose in life, guys. In being created in the image of God. This is why tomorrow, Monday, you go about your day, you go to work, you go to school, you, you're, 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 you're taking care of things at home, whatever God has for you, you are walking out creation as you're being fruitful, as you're multiplying, that speaks of growth, as you're growing as a person, as you're learning, as you're, as you're having children, as you're living life, as you're making dinner, as you're feeding your, your family, as you're going to work and working on the spreadsheet. All of these things are aspects of, of the image of God that He's put on you. And it gives meaning and purpose to life. Again, more on that next week, but come back and let's talk about that some more. Here we see, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And point number three, God finishes his work of creation. It brings us into chapter two in the first three verses, which, again, let me help you remember the chapter and verses were not in the original. And they're very helpful, but I, I think this should have been part of the chapter. It's part of the story. Because it, it's the closing Letter A, we see God rests on the seventh day. Verse 1, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. We see that word thus. It points us back to chapter 1 where God speaks the world into existence. The seventh day here that we come to, it's, it's not a day of creation. The heavens and the earth are finished. It's, it's done. That was done on day 6. And that word finish, it's an intensive form in the Hebrew the original language, and it points to the fact that it was totally finished. 
God, he, God left nothing undone. He completed what he set out to do. It's ready. When God says something, it is so. When he sets out to create, he speaks, it's accomplished. And that truth ought to be very comforting to us. It should sink into the settled reality of our lives. When we think how the author of Hebrews writes that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. How the Apostle Paul told us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. These are promises that we're given that we struggle sometimes to cling to. But, but these, these notions, these, these, these truths, they, they don't, this understanding of completion doesn't stand alone. It comes from the very nature of God's creative work that originated in Genesis 1. It says that God rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And the key word there is the well-known rest, Shabbat. It actually means to, to cease more than rest. So it's not understood as a word that means that God was just exhausted and needed to kick back in the lazy boy for a few hours. Boy, that was a hard week for me. <laughs> That's not the idea. The idea is finishing, completing, accomplishing, rejoicing, and enjoying. The New Testament concept of the Sabbath uh, brings such a beautiful light to our understanding that in pointing to Jesus himself as our Sabbath rest, that it's, it's all in him that it's all in him. And so there's beautiful truth there that we could dive into. There's also the understanding that God created the weeks and the years and the days around this calendar. This, this seven-day week is instilled into creation. And I don't know if you know, but throughout history, people have tried to change that. Back in France during the French Revolution, when they were becoming more enlightened, they thought, we can get a whole lot more done if we had a 10-day week. And they switched the, the, to the calendar to a 10-day week so we could get more work done. And guess what happened? Everything fell apart. The animals were exhausted and, and the people couldn't handle it. They went back to a seven-day. Why? God, because God means what he says. It also is an understanding there that we should be a people not only that work very hard for six days a week, but that rest. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. God blesses the seventh day, letter B, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. It's a blessing to refresh the earth. It sets it apart as significant in verse 3. God blesses it and make, made it holy, sanctified it. He set it apart. Why? Because God on it rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It was a reminder we know that as we fast forward to Exodus chapter 20, that that seventh day, the Sabbath, was, was one of the Ten Commandments that was to be kept as a reminder that we are God's creation too. That we are God's holy nation. We are God's people. And that one day a week was to remind the people of God that they belong to him. He made it holy. And I will say that a life of holiness comes from resting in Christ. 
the process of our sanctification is the work of God. He does this miraculous work. And if we can understand the power of it, if we can obey him when he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we look to the power of God, the creative power of God, how should that affect our response today? As we learn from the creation account that that God is a redeeming God, He changes darkness to light, death to life, chaos to blessing. He's absolutely sovereign over all of life. He's absolutely sovereign over all of the worldly and pagan ideologies that would, would vie for our allegiance. And that God works by His powerful Word to create to redeem and to sanctify. John Calvin said, there's not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. What's the response? Take joy. Take joy, brothers and sisters, in what God has done. When you look up at the stars tonight, what you can take joy in the power of God when you look at the leaves on the tree, when you, when you eat your lunch this afternoon, when you enjoy watching 22 men hit each other later on this afternoon on television, take joy that God gives health and strength. And God can be glorified in everything. We don't just... We, we find it in, in a good steak. We find it in the smile of your wife. You find it in so many things. Look at the grass. Look at the colors and rejoice. And most of all, rejoice in this, that the pattern of creation is the same pattern of the new creation. And God said, you see, John 1 tells us in the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is that Word? Hebrews tells us long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. You see the connections? It all culminates in Christ Jesus. It all flows, and it all points to Him. And here's what I want to ask you my fellow Christians, when God says, believe, who are you in Christ? What has Scripture proclaimed over our lives as child's, children of God, as friends of Christ, as, as, as relates to our justification, as relates to being one with Him, bought with a price, belonging to Him, members of Him, 
chosen by him, adopted as his child. I could go on and on. There's an acceptance, there's a security, there's a significance of being in Christ Jesus. God speaks. He commands, let there be. He makes promises, and his promises are true. You can stand on them. He separates. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's results. It was so. And so you can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. There's a calling. There's a naming. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You belong to him. He loves you. He's your good father. He sees you. And God saw and it was good. He sees everything. He sees your, your, your struggles. He sees your joy. And he blesses. And the greatest blessing he gives is the blessing of himself. He's not like some Santa Claus where he just gives good gifts. The gift he gives is his own person, himself. For he has said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so church, look up, look around, look at one another, look at creation, and remember, God did all this. And then look at how your sins are forgiven, and look at how your life has meaning and purpose, how you are able to rejoice even in the most darkest of days. Your heart is still filled with peace. You're not in turmoil. This is the work of the Creator who made you in His image and who is in the process of remaking you into the image of His Son. And that work is as sure as night and day.